I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you're uh, trying to learn something new, one of the approaches that you can take when trying to figure that out is to get a user manual that tells you how to do something, whether that be a repair manual for a car, whether that be a recipe book for uh, cooking or baking something, whatever it is, you can look at a book and look at the instructions and say, here's how I'm supposed to do that. Obviously, it's a little bit better if you can have someone uh, show you how to do it than to just try to uh, go after it just by reading through the steps. But there's something different between reading through a manual and listening to somebody for whom that particular activity is their passion. So if you have someone who says, I really like cars, uh, I'm going to fix those, you can pull out a, a Haynes manual or a Chilton manual and you can, you can start reading through all the steps. It's kind of dry, it's kind of academic, it's not necessarily all that, all that interesting, but you start talking to someone for whom that's something that really excites them and they'll start telling you the history of the particular thing that they like the most and here's all the features of it and, and whatever it is, or someone for whom uh, baking is their thing, someone for whom, name whatever it is, someone starts talking about it, that's their thing, you know what it is, and it's hard to get them to stop talking about it. So you have this contrast between steps of instructions and the excitement that someone has describing something that uh, is a, a big part of their lives. When we come to a book, like the book of Acts, it's easy for us to lean toward those two extremes. Either it's just a set of instructions, here's what the early church did, so here's what we're supposed to do, or it's an exciting story. But the reality, I think, lies somewhere between those two extremes. The reason that I say that is, there are some things that we come across in the book of Acts that were historical events that will not be repeated that we can't do today. And so to say that it's simply something that we are going to do everything that they did in Acts is not realistic. But on the other hand, if we look at it simply as a set of instructions and we're going to do all of these different things and, and we lose the excitement and the uh, fervor and the picture of what God was doing in establishing the church, I think that we've missed some of the point of the book as well. So how do we know when to view a section of the book of Acts, or any book for that matter, as just descriptive of what was taking place or as something that we should do today? I think perhaps that might not be the best place to start because as we look at the book, the book of Acts is fundamentally a narrative. It's a story that's recorded of all of these things that were taking place. And as we were talking about some, when it comes to how we interpret the Bible, we have to look at the sort of thing that we have in front of us. If it's a letter, read it as you would a letter. If it's a narrative, read it as you would a narrative, and in all of these sorts of things. Because when we try to read a narrative as a letter, when we try to read uh, prophecy or wisdom literature exactly the same way that we would read a story, uh, we don't do it well. We often don't do it accurately. And so as we look at the book of Acts, I think we have to ask the questions that we would ask when we're reading a story. What happened just before? What's happening now? What happens after? Who are the characters? What uh, is the attitude of the characters toward one another? What's the attitude of the, the author, the narrator, toward the events that are taking place? And these questions, I think, help us to gain insight 
into the lessons that we can learn from a book like Acts. Most importantly, I think we have to ask, what is it that God wants us to learn from the book? What do we re learn about who he is and about what he's told us to do? Before we get into the book, we have to, of course, go through some of the things that are not perhaps particularly exciting, but are important for our understanding of the book. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1, and look at verse 1. Who wrote the book? Now, in some of the books of the Bible, it's fairly straightforward who wrote the book. Paul to the church at Ephesus, for example. It's, it's laid out specifically. But in this case, we only see the word I. We don't see the author's name. The first account I get composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he continues in verse 2. So this is the second part of an account that has already begun. We have to say, well, which account does this point back to? It points back to the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke and Acts stand together as a unified account of the life and ministry of Jesus and the founding and activities of the early church. Now, the same questions that apply to who wrote the book of Luke also apply here because Luke doesn't name himself as the author in that, epistle, in that uh, gospel either. Who was Luke? We don't have a great deal of information about him, but based on the information that we do have in several of the epistles, it appears that he was a Gentile. Clearly, he was a, a companion of the Apostle Paul. But we don't have a great deal of information about his background. And I think that we don't necessarily need to have a great deal of information about his background. The important thing is that he was someone who was here observing the events, talking to those who had observed the events, and recording them accurately. And that, I think, is important as we consider who the audience is, because he says the audience is Theophilus. Now, literally speaking, that's just someone who loves God or friend of God, if we said, what does the, that name mean? And so some people have said, well, this isn't written to a specific person. This is written to just people who love God in the world generally. But I think that the way that it is phrased in this context and the beginning of the Gospel of Luke seems to be addressed to a specific person. If so, uh, in uh, uh, Luke, he writes it to most excellent Theophilus, and I think that that's significant because that would have been a title of someone in some measure of authority. What position of authority, we don't know, but given the context and the circumstances in which he was writing it, it seems quite possible that Luke was writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to represent what Christianity truly was to those who are of a Gentile audience, potentially to those who were in positions of authority. When was it written? Uh, most likely it was written between AD 60 and AD 70. Why is this significant? Well, and, and why would we say it was in that time period? The book only goes up to Paul's imprisonment for two years. And we understand from church history at least many would say, that Paul was released after that time. And he was, uh, some believe that he did fulfill his goal of going and ministering in Spain, and then he was later martyred. But we don't have that account recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so it would seem strange, Paul would have died in the mid-60s, it would seem strange that if that had already taken place, that Luke would not have included that in the book. So it seems likely that he would have written it uh, before Paul's death, uh, before the final events of Paul's life. We also don't see mention of some of the cataclysmic events around AD 70. For example, 
the destruction of Jerusalem and some of those things, which you think as well potentially would have been mentioned since they had significant impact not only on the Jews, but also the Christians who were living in Jerusalem at the time. And so most likely this was written in AD 60 to 70, probably in the early part of that range. Dates that are much later than that are a problem because they assume a view of Scripture that says it wasn't written by the apostles or it wasn't written by those closely associated with the apostles, which begins to undermine the historical accuracy of these books. And so someone who would say, well, it was written in AD 125 or AD 150, those dates are coming from a perspective that says the Bible isn't written by who it said it was written by. It was sort of recorded after the fact by followers of Jesus in the second and third generation. Why was it written? Clearly, Luke wanted to tell a true story about Jesus in the first years of the church. We see this from Luke 1, 1 through 4, and also the first five verses here. He may have also wanted to uh, defend Christianity against false accusations. We see this, for example, in Acts 8 and verse... Um, uh, it, I'm sorry. It's not the right reference. There were false accusations, Acts 28:22. The, the people who had uh, Paul goes to see, he says, We did desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So when Paul arrives in Rome, the Jews that here have heard about Christianity have an almost universally negative viewpoint about what Christianity is, what it's like. And so part of Luke's purpose may have been to correct false assumptions about what Christianity was like. And then finally, the book certainly describes the work of the Holy Spirit in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem throughout the known world. And we see this uh, beginning in Acts 1.8 and expanded throughout the book, which leads us into what the structure of the book is. There's different ways to look at the structure of the book of Acts. Some people have said, well, let's look at main characters in the book. And generally, the ones that are selected are Peter and Paul because they're the most significant. The problem is, if you take a view of the book that just talks about the work of Peter and the work of Paul then you leave out what God did among the Samaritans through Philip the Evangelist in Acts 8. And so to organize it strictly around just two main characters may not be the best way to look at it. Other people have said, well, there seem to be these progress reports about the development of the church. Uh, for example, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2, the Hellenists and the Samaritans, the Gentiles in Antioch, and, and a number of these different places in the book. And again, you could organize it that way. But I think the simplest way to look at the book is simply to look at Acts 1-8 and see how it is fulfilled. The gospel goes to the Jews in Acts 1-7. The gospel goes to the Samaritans in Acts 8. And the gospel goes to the rest of the Gentile world in Acts 9-28. through So that gives us the background to the book. What lessons are we supposed to learn then from these first 11 verses that we're looking at this morning? I think the first thing that we see is that the church is not the end goal. And we look at that and we say, if this is a book about the church, why would you start out with saying that the church isn't the main thing, the end goal, the most important? I think that we have to do, say that in light of both verses 3 and verse 6. Verse 3, it says that Jesus spoke of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, the disciples asked the question, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now, if Jesus had said, I'm going to build the church, 
Why is it that the disciples are asking about the kingdom? Well, the reality is that the end goal is the kingdom of God. David was promised back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God was going to establish not only David on the throne in Jerusalem, but also his son Solomon, and that there would be a throne established forever for David and his descendants. That is developed further, for example, in, in Daniel 7 and verse 27, with the idea that there would be an eternal kingdom, and that a descendant, ultimately of David, would be the one who would rule over the world, the universe, in that eternal kingdom. And then in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, we see that Luke represents Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So if this statement about Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Obviously, when it comes to the fact of Christ's crucifixion and his burial, this raises significant questions about whether or not that promise had come to pass or would be fulfilled. And so it was certainly natural for the disciples to ask, is the kingdom still going to happen? When is it going to happen? We see from verse 6 that the kingdom was from the disciples' perspective, for Israel. He says, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Consider Israel's history. They had been for centuries a people who were under the rule of other nations. Not since their final king was, was uh, taken out of authority and they were conquered by Babylon some 400 years before, uh, uh, sorry, not 400 years before, uh, centuries before. They had not had a king to rule. They had been under Roman authority for some period of time at the time of this writing. And so the idea of this kingdom is something where it's not something that they had seen. It's not something that those before them had seen. It's not even something that necessarily their grandparents had seen. This was something that was becoming a distant memory. The idea of them being a part of a kingdom and being ruled over themselves and all of those sorts of things. When Christ came, it seemed that these promises that God had made were going to be fulfilled, were going to come true, and then he was crucified. And then he was raised from the dead, and now he's speaking to them of the kingdom of God, and they say, when is this going to take place? We recognize that the Israelites had rejected their king. We'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 2. They crucified the one whom God had sent, the chosen one of God. This is a repeated theme in Acts. A number of times, for example, Peter highlights the guilt of the Jews in rejecting their Messiah and in crucifying them and uses that as a basis for, and now you need to repent and believe the message about Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Follow him. Stop rejecting him. Follow him. But that rejection of Christ meant that the kingdom was not at that time. And Jesus indicates that the kingdom was not necessarily immediate. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice he doesn't say the kingdom will not come, but he says it's not something that you will be told exactly when it will take place. 
and by implication of the rest of the things that we see in the book of Acts, I think that we can safely say the kingdom was not something that took place at that time either. So what does that mean for us? The kingdom of God is something that God will establish, but the kingdom of God has not yet come. And the time of the coming of the kingdom of God was not revealed to the disciples. So what then was God doing in the world if he was not setting up his kingdom? And the answer is that the kingdom is the end goal, not the church. But even so, for this time period, the church is central to what God is doing in the world today. We see this in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so what God was going to do was in the time period between the coming of Christ to die and pay for sin and the coming of Christ to rule and reign as king was that he had established this organism, this thing called the church. And the church was what he was going to build. It was the means by which he was going to accomplish his purpose in the world. It's what we are still participating in yet today. How would this church be formed? It would be built by means of the apostles. He says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This idea of being filled with the Spirit uh, occurs a number of times in the book of Acts. Several times, for example, when Peter stands up and preaches, it's described that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and then he preaches. Uh, P, uh, Philip, when he goes and speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch, is clearly under the control and the direction of of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has a central role in the founding of the church. This filling had parallels, I think, to the filling, the enabling, the special work of God in the Old Testament when God would assist the kings of Israel in ruling well, the craftsmen in building the temple well, and this filling was something that accomplished God's purpose in, in building the church. What would this filling lead to? It wasn't just that they had the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they just had it and then nothing happened. But rather, it was something that helped them to be witnesses. It says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. The apostles were going to witness about Christ. This witnessing about Christ was something where they were in a unique position to serve as eyewitnesses of what had taken place. This wasn't a story that they had heard second or third hand. Remember when I was in high school, I participated in a debate for some kind of competition for high school, and part of the debate process was trying to prove that the other people's evidence was shaky at best. And so we asked that question, where did you get this evidence? Well, my mom heard it from her friend who saw it on TV. That's not sufficient proof when you're going to make a statement. It has to have more support than just somebody told me about it second or third hand. The same is true of the message of the gospel and the building of the church. It was necessary that there would be people who had been with Christ, who had seen what Christ was doing, heard the message that he had taught, been witnesses to his death and burial and resurrection, and then proclaiming that message to those around them. We see that particularly uh, as we come to the second part of chapter 1, which we'll look at next week. The apostles were to witness of Christ, and as God's witnesses, they were going to spread the message throughout the whole world. This was clearly a geographical expansion from Jerusalem, a city in Judea, 
to the larger region of Judea, to the neighboring region of Samaria, to the rest of the earth. We see as the book of Acts unfolds that the gospel is taken by Peter and Philip and Paul and others throughout Asia Minor, into Macedonia, into northern Africa, all throughout the known world, into Italy. We see the gospel spread. And so this is what God meant when he said these things will happen. It was also an ethnic expansion. It wasn't just go to a different place, but consider what those names of regions represented. The Jews were primarily concentrated in Judea. You came to the uh, state, if you will, of Samaria. And who was there? People who were of mixed Jewish and non-Jewish descent. They were somewhat Jews, but they followed their own system of religion and system of belief. And uh, they, they were not uh, God's people exclusively, but they were intermingled with the nations around them. And then you come uh, further out, and you see people who had no connection whatsoever with Judaism, perhaps a connection with the faith of Judaism. They were followers of God or Jewish proselytes, but they weren't Jews themselves. And so you see the gospel spreading beyond those who are ethnically Jews to those who are partially ethnically Jews to those who are not Jews at all. And so it spreads geographically and it spreads ethnically. Also notice that verse 8 indicates that this is something that God would be doing. It wasn't something that the apostles were saying. He wasn't saying to the apostles, do this, although there is a statement to that effect in Matthew 28. But here he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. He doesn't say be witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses. So this is something, this is a work that clearly from the outset of the book is something that God is accomplishing. So the kingdom is yet future. And God is working through the church today. But the church was not merely a human effort, as I was just saying. Instead, the church is built by the triune God. How do we know this? Well, first we see the role of God the Father. God the Father foretells and accomplishes His purpose. We see this in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father is fixed by His own authority. What does that point us to? It points us to the fact that God the Father has a plan that He is unfolding for all of creation, from the beginning in the creation to the end in the eternal kingdom of God, God has a plan that He is unfolding. So God the Father is involved in salvation, in the building of the church, in the sense of setting out and accomplishing this plan, this purpose. Uh, this is also connected with the fact that the Father had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 4, to wait for what the Father had promised. So, here's the broad overarching plan. Here's one specific thing of what's happening next. You need to wait in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Father has promised the Spirit. When is the Spirit going to come? The Spirit is going to come as you wait here in Jerusalem very shortly. So wait here. Recognize God's plan. So God the Father foretells and accomplishes His purpose. God the Son is certainly central in the accomplishing of the building of the church. He lives, He dies, He rises, He ascends on behalf of God's people in the book of Luke and now here in the book of Acts. Christ's life and death provide salvation for the church. He says in verse 1, He spoke of all that Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospel of Luke until the day He was taken up to heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. To these He presented Himself alive after His suffering appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of them 
uh, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So we see allusions in these verses to the entirety of Jesus' life and death. All he began to do and teach, his ministry on earth, his suffering, his death, he presented himself alive, that will lead us to his resurrection. Why are these things important? Why do these things serve as the foundation of the church? Well, the reality is that apart from Christ's death, there is no payment of sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus had not been in the place of sinners, there would be no righteousness possible for God's people. And so Christ's death is essential. Building on that and connected with that, Romans 4 says, apart from Christ's life, there is no righteousness to be given to the sinner, to be credited to his account from God's perspective. If Christ had not lived a holy life, he could pay for our sins and wipe away the debt. But God doesn't just expect us to say, you haven't done anything bad. God has said, we need to be much more than that. We need to have done things positively that are good. We couldn't do those things on our own. And so Christ, living a holy life, fulfilled those things on our behalf in God's sight. So it's not just that the debt was wiped away and we're neither bad nor good, but we are positively righteous in God's sight through the work of Christ. And so Christ's life and death are central to the gospel, to the building of the church. Christ's resurrection and ascension provide hope for the church. We see this in several phrases. He presented himself alive, and then he will come again in just the same way in verse 11. So what's the hope? Christ is alive. Many convincing proofs. Remember what he said? He showed the disciples in the upper room. He showed them the spots where the nails had pierced his hands and his feet and his side. He said, I was dead and now I am alive. And we could go into great length, but for sake of time, I'll just summarize it this way. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, If Jesus was not raised, your faith is empty and worthless. Because he is raised... That provides the foundation of every hope that the Christian has in salvation. And so Christ was raised from the dead. And this is central both to our faith and to the founding of the early church. Because otherwise, the church is being built on a lie. Here's a nice story that the disciples made up. Jesus was raised from the dead. No, we know that you went and hid his body. If the church was built on that, why participate in it? Why study it? What good is it? It's worthless. But because Jesus is alive, it has purpose, it has meaning, it has significance. And Christ's ministry would continue in the church. He taught the apostles, he gave instructions to them, he sent the Holy Spirit as he had promised in the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus was continuing his work in the church. The fact that he ascends to heaven doesn't mean that his work in the church had stopped. Instead, it continues. We see also that God the Spirit would build the church. The Spirit gives power. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so the power for the apostles to do the ministry that God had called them to do specifically was seen as coming from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was the one who would advance the Gospels. That power would flow into them being witnesses. 
So we look at this introductory section and we see that it sets the tone for the entirety of the book. And I hope that from these verses, even though we've looked at some of the background issues to the book and some of those other things that maybe are not the most interesting, that we will not look at the book and say that this is just empty history, it has no relevance, there's no importance for today. It's not just a list of things that we must do, but instead it is a powerful account of the work of God in founding the church that gives us a picture not only of what God was doing then, but also anticipates what God is doing now. The same Spirit who worked in the early church is the same Spirit who works in and among us today. The same God who was unfolding His plan at that time is the same God the Father who is unfolding His plan today. The same Jesus whom the disciples believed in, who was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, is the same Jesus that we need to trust in today. Remember what Jesus said? If I go to heaven, I go to prepare a place for you. But what did He say before that? He said, you know the way to the Father. They say, how do we know the way to the Father? You know the way to the Father if you know Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son is not just a way to God the Father. He is the only way to God the Father. And so it is essential that we believe as the early church believed that there is one way of salvation, that it is through Jesus, and that is our hope, our standing before God. Because as we're going to see in chapter 2 and 4 and, and all throughout the book, there is this sense of guilt that every person has before God. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve God's wrath. The only hope that we have is found in Jesus. That was the message that the apostles preached. That was the message on which the church was founded. That's the message that we must believe in and teach today. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is that the thing that I am trusting in myself? Am I trusting in the life, the death, the work of Christ on my behalf to make me right before God? Or am I trusting in something else? Because you cannot be a part of the work that God did, was doing then and continues today in the church if you're not a follower of God. If you are a follower of God, then as we look at these things, we ought to be excited, we ought to be encouraged that this is something that God was doing. Yes, the apostles had a role in it. Yes, the early Christians had a role in it. But only because God was working through them to accomplish His purpose. Which gives us hope that as we serve God in the church today, God is likewise working through us. We have confidence that it will go forward because God's is the power that stands behind it. And then I think a third thing that we ought to recognize in light of these truths is this. If God is building the church, if it is His purpose in the world today, and if we are a part of it, what are we doing to participate in God building the church? We'll see many accounts as we go through the book of Acts of people taking the gospel message to a variety of people in a variety of places. And I think we have to ask ourselves, am I doing that same thing? Because the work was not done just because Paul was martyred. The work was not done just because the gospel had spread through the world as it existed at that time. Jesus said, I am with you always till the end of the age. The end of the age has not yet come. Jesus is still with us. 
the responsibility to proclaim the gospel is still upon us. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I doing that? And so along those lines, I hope that as we look at these accounts, we are encouraged and motivated to do it. And then on Sunday evenings, tonight and through the rest of September, I hope that we will be able to look at some practical truths about how to do that. What are some excuses that we make for not sharing the gospel? What are some uh, approaches that we can take, uh, just practical ways how to share the gospel? What are some of the responses that people have and what are we to make of them? As we look at these truths, I hope that it's not just something that we see as being a long way off back here, but something that's supposed to affect our lives today. God built His church. God is building His church. Are we part of what God is doing in the world today through the church? Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths just briefly and and in an introductory way about the work that you did through your church uh, shortly after your resurrection and ascension, We recognize that you built the church, but we recognize as well that you are still building the church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be excited about the opportunity that you have given us to be a part of that, that we would not see it as something from long ago that has no relevance for today, but as a work that you are continuing, that even as you were with those in the early church, as they faced persecution and opposition, as they faced blessing and help, All of these things you brought into their lives, you bring into our lives as well today. Your power works in and through all of these circumstances to accomplish your purpose, your plan. You are carrying it out through us. And so we can have confidence. We should be motivated to be diligent. We can be encouraged by the truth that we see. We pray that it would have that effect on us uh, today and throughout this week. And even as we look at how to fulfill these things tonight, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.